there's a topic that I'd like to talk about today. But to be honest, I am tired of hearing about it. Every hour of every day, there's some new statement or rumor or discussion or op-ed piece or behavior that ranges somewhere between impolite and horrific. It was horrible for the last nine months. And it only figures to get worse. Of course, I'm talking about the Golden State Warriors <laughs> losing their 3-1 lead to the Cleveland Cavaliers in the NBA Finals last year. I wish. No, I'm actually talking about the campaign and the election and selection of Donald Trump as the next president of the United States. So I don't know how everybody voted here today. I'll just tell you about how I felt that particular night. I went through the traditional Kubler-Ross grief cycle. Denial. No. Can't be. Well, the popular votes aren't in yet. No. Anger. Wait. This person, who many people, including by the admission of many voting for him, this person, they do not believe he is qualified for this position. And this is the person who's winning? Depression. Oh, well. This country was going to hell in a handbasket anyways. <laughs> Bargaining. Is there anything, anything that I can do to turn this election around? Anything. Acceptance. Well, that's it. Yeah. That's really it. Wow. Grief is an interesting process. While some of the original theories on grief believed it to be linear, with people moving predictably from one stage to the next, those actually experiencing grief felt they were moving back and forth and back again from stage to stage. Some believe grief to be a cycle through which people experience the same stages over and over in a uniform fashion until they are ready to move on or they just give up. Others believe it to be a dual process in which grief comes in waves, powerful and debilitating in one moment and completely gone in the next. For some of you, you're in the midst of the disbelief and sorrow over what has happened and what may happen. But that will change. For others, you're in full acceptance of the road that lies ahead for our country, but that will change too, especially as the time of the inauguration approaches and the first executive orders and pieces of legislation are actually being proposed. It's this ongoing nature of grief for some of us that leads me to share my thoughts today. And I'm guessing I'm not the only one here experiencing this and for the last few weeks. In talking with people and reading news and social media, there was such a level of sorrow, despondence, and disillusionment to the point that people were comparing 11-9-2016 to 9-11-2001. To many, this was more than just a presidential election. It was a signal of the direction our country may take in the next four years, with all signs pointing to a societal regression in socioeconomics, in race relations, and in individual freedoms. Given that, Grief would seem like an appropriate description for what so many of us are feeling. But one phrase captured my attention through the media, through social media, through people's conversations. This is no longer my country. They were so shocked that the fellow citizens, that their fellow citizens, would vote for someone who possessed so many of the failings which we have sought to rid ourselves of, that the United States seemed to have become another place altogether. Though I personally didn't feel that way. I began to ask myself the question, how would I live in a country that was no longer my own? 
that somehow I had lost. And the thing that came to mind was the behavior of the nation of Israel when they were taken into exile. Their story is found in the Bible, in the books of the prophets. In summary, from about 1100 to 800 BCE, Israel is composed of one and then two independent kingdoms. But in the following centuries, the people of Israel were forcibly taken away by two conquering empires. And they settled into lands that were not their own, under a leadership that was not their own, into cultures that were not their own. I believe that there are some lessons we can take from their experiences and either apply it to our present political and social situation or, more generally, consider how we are called to live within circumstances that we would consider less than preferable. I'm sharing these lessons in order to not to rush you through the grief process if you're in it. They're intended more for those who are now considering what do we do next. And in the future, that might just be you. One lesson we can draw from the exile, continue to live life. I know this sounds ridiculous, but honestly, a week ago, some people were ready to jump off of high places with no angels to catch them. And it's quite possible that as the transition to the new president continues, you might find yourself back at that place of depression and despondence. For Israel, who had lost everything and was forced into a land that was not their own, they heard what they should do from God the prophet Jeremiah. The book of Jeremiah, chapter 9, verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. God is speaking to a people who are grieving, grieving the loss of their land, the loss of their way of life, the loss of their self-government, and he says, your call to living life and living life well does not stop. Even in these circumstances, you must live. Of course, God knew they would grieve and permitted it. So we must also allow ourselves time to grieve. If you yourself are not grieving, allow others to grieve, even if you don't understand why they're doing it. But when that grief subsides, continue to live your lives. As for moving to Canada, moving to blue states to find like-minded people, moving to red states to try to affect change there, let's be honest. Wherever you go, you will encounter people who don't think like you and who disagree with you. So instead, bloom where God has planted you. And as for those who disagree with you, how do we deal with them? How do we interact with them? Here's our second lesson from the exile. Find common ground, but do not capitulate. They settled in this land that wasn't their own, and they had to determine how to live amongst the people of this land and build their lives. So we see an example of how to do this in the lives of four young boys. So let's look at the book of Daniel, chapter 1, verse 3. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, 
showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. It was, he was to teach them the language and the literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. Now these four boys were willing to submit to their new rulers. They found their gifts were of use to the king, and so they entered into service. They could have refused to interact with the Babylonians at all, or they could have chosen to actively oppose and rebel against this government. But instead, they followed the commands of God as given through Jeremiah. Seek the peace and the prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. So they submitted themselves to this training, even agreeing to accept these new names. And that is a big deal. Because those names signaled their identity and their loyalty to their own faith. We have the name Daniel. In Hebrew, Daniel means, God is my judge. He was given a new name, which was Belteshazzar, which means in Babylonian, Bel protects his life. Bel was the, likely the god Marduk, who was the patron god of Babylon. So immediately we see a shift from, this is your protector, this is your judge. No, this is your judge. Hananiah, whose name means God has been gracious, was given the name Shadrach, or the command of Aku. And Aku was the Babylonian god of the moon. Mishael, or Michael, as we sometimes call people today, who it means who is like God. His new name, Azariah, sorry, Meshach, means who is like Aku. Again, who is like the Babylonian god of the moon. We have the shift between this is your god, no, no, no. This is your god. Finally, we have Azariah, whose name means God has helped. And his name was changed to Abednego, which means the servant of Nebo, the servant of the Babylonian god of wisdom. So by renaming these young men, the hope was that they would be assimilated into Babylonian culture and forget their previous culture. We see this, occur, uh, we see this occurring with those immigrants to the United States. They take on a more American-sounding name from their original cultural name in order to fit in better. And this was a compromise that these boys made as part of their new life in exile. But although they accepted these new names, they did not abandon their identity. Let's look at verse 8. Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. What was wrong with the food? Any guesses? Kosher, yes. It's quite possible, it's actually quite likely, that this, these foods violated the kosher or kashrut laws that God gave to Israel, as we can see throughout the Torah, in the first five books of the Bible. So to eat the food that came from the royal palace was to, possibly to break God's commandment to be set apart, to be holy as a people. So let's take a look at verse 11. Daniel then said to the guard, who the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. And then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food. 
and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. In this new America that we find ourselves in, we too are called to live and interact with those with whom we disagree. This may involve compromising with the ruling movement as needed. There are paths that we can take as a community and as a nation that can satisfy multiple sides. And as followers of Jesus, we must recognize one thing. We are not perfect, and and our choice of behavior may be wrong. And you might be saying, I'm not wrong. How dare you say that I am wrong? How dare you suggest that my position is incorrect? Well, one of the rules of effective evangelism is parity. You cannot expect someone to be open to your perspective if you are not open to theirs. How can you expect someone to have an open mind towards your views if you yourself come to the table with a closed mind about theirs? Having said this, we should never change our mind about key policies and concerns which would violate our primary call to love God and to love our neighbor. So we are to speak and we are to stand against the potential abuses of the government towards our Muslim brothers and sisters, towards our undocumented neighbors, towards our LGBT family and friends, and against every other decision that threatens harm to our neighbor. Names and labels matter a lot in this discussion. They may label our Muslim brothers as terrorist threats. They may call our undocumented family and friends illegal and damaging to our economy. They may label our LGBT brothers and sisters as immoral. And they may call us, us who are trying to follow the will of God, to, be, to do our best to love our God and to love our neighbor, they may call us ignorant. These names and labels do matter. And they may be placed upon us and others unfairly. But names alone do not define a person. Look again at verse 15. At the end of 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. How is this possible? Vegan diet, perhaps? Maybe. But also, maybe their choice not to violate their principles garnered a supernatural blessing from God. And that brings us to our third lesson from the exile. God is at work. And often when we think change is impossible. We often think that we do the work. We do the work of planting and growing and changing. And God assists us. And it all rests on our shoulders. That is the reverse of how we should be thinking. God does the work. And we assist him. Often we're not privy to what he is doing. But if we simply make ourselves available, we may be amazed at the impossible things he can do through us. The nation of Israel witnessed this for themselves. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. And the astrologers said to King Nebuchadnezzar, May the king live forever! Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold. And whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. 
But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So these men were brought before the king, and Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Note how often the king and the other officials are using their Babylonian names, as though to emphasize that their loyalty to their god is a thing of the past, and they owe honor and respect this Babylonian pantheon. But that's not how the Hebrew boys saw it. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. We see that these three young men were willing to compromise with a government that was not their own, but for them, there was a clear line that they drew between compromise and capitulation. They would not violate their commitment to God to remain set apart and holy. To worship another God would be to violate the first of the Ten Commandments set before Moses. And so in order to keep their commitments... They were willing to face any consequences, including the ultimate one. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with rage at Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in his army army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and throw them into this blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. And then King Nebuchadnezzar leapt to his feet in amazement and asked his advisors, weren't these three men, weren't there three men that we let tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisors crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was there a hair on their heads singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned to the piles of rubble for no other god can save in this way. The king, Nebuchadnezzar, he experienced real change. 
His eyes were open to the truth of the God of Israel. And he went from public executions of those who refused to bow to his idol to enacting a slander law against those who would insult the God of Israel. In a moment, Babylon went from a state persecuting a religion to a state defending it. Who could have made this possible? Only God. And who were the instruments that God used to change the king's mind? Three young men who compromised but refused to capitulate, who bent but did not break, even under the greatest of pressure. To be clear, we will not sell out the foreigner and the alien for our own benefit. We will not ignore the widow and the orphan for our own comfort. To love God and to love our neighbor is our highest calling, and we will not compromise this. But rather than place ourselves in a permanent position of stubborn defiance, for now and for the next few years, we must keep our eyes open. We must keep our ears open. And our bodies ready to be placed at risk. For who knows? We do not know what God is doing right now in the minds and hearts of all those who seem to be against his will. You may see a person so prejudiced, so unprincipled, and so obstinate that they cannot see beyond their own opinion. But do you know what God sees? He sees one of his creations. And God has given this person the free will to make make mistakes and to harm others, but also the free will to, to redress those mistakes and offer care. God can use us to guide these people, but only if we do not let our pain, our disbelief, and our pride, yes, our pride, get in the way. Is your behavior going to change our new president's mind like the Hebrew man's behavior changes that of Nebuchadnezzar? Probably not, at least not directly. But let God use you and see what he does. He does the work and we assist him. In a world defined by polarization, by zero-sum understandings of life, by scarcity of resources, and by pragmatism above idealism, it sounds absolutely ridiculous to place yourself in a position to help those who are battling with you. But it's our calling. And it's today's final lesson from the exile. Love your enemies. You see, the people of Israel were carried to a country that was not their own, beginning in 800 BCE. And while they did return to the land after 70 years, they remained under the control of some other nation. First it was Assyria, then Babylon, then Macedonia, then the Seleucids, then Rome. In many ways, Israel remained in a country that was not their own, even though they were back in their own land. And about 800 years after they were first carried away to Babylon, or Assyria, another in the line of prophets rose up to share the words of God with these people in exile. You have heard it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Not even pagans do that. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In the same way that God loves and blesses those who work against him and against his themes of justice and mercy, God, Jesus calls us, 
God as Jesus calls us, to love those who oppose us if we stand for God's righteousness. Let me repeat that. God, Jesus calls us to love those who oppose us if we stand for what God calls righteous. Let's be clear. To love someone does not require us to be in total agreement with them. To love someone does not mean we unconditionally accept their perspective or to condone the behaviors that we see as immoral. Love can actually mean the opposite. We can challenge others because we love them. We can rebuke others because we love them. With total humility, and only with total humility, can love mean wanting the best for another person. And when we see them seeking anything less than what God wants for them, it's our calling to show them what is better for their sake, not for ours, for their sake. Loving another person doesn't always feel good. And it's not always reciprocal, as in, if I love you, then you'll love me. Or, if I show respect to you, then you'll respect me. That won't necessarily happen. But love can be transformative. Because it begs the question, why are you showing love to someone who I don't think deserves it? The answer? It's not who we are or who you are. It's whose we are and who loves you. Who loves you and who you belong to is why we take this irrational, ridiculous, ridiculous action of loving the seemingly undeserving. Can you love this person, known as Abubakar al-Baghdadi, who founded and leads the organization that has caused death and misery for millions of people throughout the Middle East and Europe for the sake of his own myopic view of God? Can you love this person, Darren Wilson, a policeman who shot an unarmed teenager in the back in Ferguson, Missouri, triggering a polarizing view of police and the citizenry of this country? Can you love this person, Abubakar Sheikhau, who leads an organization terrorizing, persecuting, raping, kidnapping, and murdering thousands of his fellow Nigerians because of his warped sense of justice? Can you love this person, Dylan Roof, who killed nine people at a Bible study in Charleston, South Carolina, due to his misguided beliefs about race? These are all people that God loves, and all people God calls us to love. There's one other person who God loves, and whom many of us might consider with the same anger and vitriol, even if it's undeserved. Can you love this man who, proposes, who proposed policies and behavior that may lead to systematic injustice in our country, and whose promises have made him the excuse for outbreaks of violence and prejudice? Can you love this man and pray for him? I'm not saying it's going to be easy, for a lot of us, I'm not saying that you are capable of love, this kind of love at this point in time, especially if you are in the midst of grief, if you're struggling with denial and anger and depression and hopelessness. But all around us, we have examples of how to love. Can we love like this person, Sabrina Fulton, whose son Trayvon Martin was killed unjustly, and while in her anger and grief, understood and stated to the press that she knew she must eventually kill the man. She must eventually forgive the man who killed her son. Can we love like this person, Malala Yousafzai, whose stand for educational equality led to a brutal physical assault, and yet she continues to speak on behalf of women's rights, hoping that those who disagree with her will one day be changed? 
Can we love like this person, John Lewis, who was the target of slings and arrows as a civil rights leader in the 1960s and continues the fight for equality for those who are treated as less than? And he's doing this at age 76. Can we love like this man, Russell Moore, a prominent leader in the Southern Baptist Convention and a white evangelical American male who, against the attacks of those inside and outside of his church, has strongly called for social justice for the marginalized to be the primary goal, or one of the primary goals, for all of evangelical Christianity throughout the world. These are imperfect people, just like the previous group we mentioned. But unlike that previous group, these people have chosen to love their enemies. This is the ultimate lesson that we must take from the exile. When we have a God who sees his loved ones become his enemies and who is willing to suffer their insults and their injuries to the point that he sacrifices himself out of love for them, we have quite an example to live up to. And in time, we will. Armed with God's wisdom, his guidance, and his love, we will. Honestly, there was not a lot. There was a lot that I didn't discuss with you tonight. There were so many perspectives, so many issues, and so many feelings that we just can't address in our short time tonight. And I apologize for not bringing all of those different perspectives to light. But what I just offered is one perspective. In our community's ongoing conversation on how not only to grasp what has happened and what steps we individually and communally must take, but also in the general spark church theme of how we are called to love as followers of Jesus. But until God steps in and brings solutions to us that we can work alongside him with, and as we struggle with our grief, there's still one thing we can absolutely do together. We can pray. This is a prayer that many of you might recognize as part of the Alcoholics Anonymous movement, but it was actually created apart from it in about the 1920s or 1930s, and attributed to a Christian theologian named Reinhard Niebuhr. When life is uncertain, this prayer can bring focus. So I'd like for all of us to say the full version together. There's multiple parts to this. The full version together, and say it slowly and one at a time. Can you guys do that? Okay, let's pray. And repeat after me. God, give us grace to accept with serenity the things that cannot be changed, courage to change the things that which should be changed, and the wisdom to distinguish the one from the other, living one day at a time, enjoying one moment at a time, Accepting hardship as a pathway to peace. Taking, as Jesus did, this sinful world as it is. Not as we would have it. Trusting that you will make all things right if we surrender to your will so that we may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with you forever in the next. Amen.